0: Hello welcome to another episode of the Review from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. This episode is jam-packed full of great educational goodness. Today, I have an in-depth conversation with educational researcher from the University of Warwick, Dr. Tom Perry. Tom was the lead researcher on a systematic review sponsored by the Education Endowment Foundation, also known as the EEF, back in 2021. The report's official title was Cognitive Science Approaches in the Classroom, a Review of the Evidence. There's a link to the notes so you can explore the report yourself. In our conversation, we explore how these types of reviews are put together and the challenges Tom and his team faced when trying to whittle down the robust evidence to help answer the original questions. We have time to talk about the main themes of the report, including interleaving, space practice, retrieval, amongst many others. There's so much to discover in this in-depth episode. So without further ado, let's get started with this week's episode of View From The Lab. I'm gonna start off with um, talking about bit about the background of your kind of career in education because we've talked off the podcast about um what you did before you were involved in educational research could you just give us a quick um run through of, of how you got to where you are today so to speak
1: yes i'm uh, one of these people from a family of teachers and educational psychologists and sencos and and, and so forth and i um i went from finishing a bachelor's degree to deciding that i wanted to go into the classroom i um did a pgce at warwick i've always been quite a studious person i love finding out new things so right from the outset i got stuck into education research from the start um i think it's fair to say back then in in terms of practical lessons from research education research was a bit of a bit mixed bag back then yeah um It did get me thinking though and I I certainly carried a reading habit with me into the early years of the classroom as I was was getting to grips with things. Um, In terms of then how I got back into education research, um, uh, a few years uh, following my PGCE I I remember sitting in a staff meeting. We were looking through some performance data and um, I had a background in economics and uh, so I happened to know a little bit about how these these measures were made and, and I was really intrigued by how they were being used given that. Um, my wife had a uni library card at the time. So I, I went and did some searches and it was, well, it, it, it was an absolute rabbit hole. OK, suddenly you unearth—you you just never believe how problematic our approach to measuring school performance is. It's, it's, it's a real rabbit hole. It, anyway, so I, I, I did a PhD at University of Birmingham to find out more about that topic. But I found myself teaching all things to do with research methods. I carried on my kind of passion for reading educational research, trying to um, see how it connects to policy and practice um, and wanting to get into, stuck into research projects and teaching projects, which enabled me to
0: carry on doing that work. So what was your so you're you talked about your PhD there. What was your the focus of your PhD? What was the overarching um theme of it? It was on measuring school performance.
1: So at the at the time we um Michael Gove had decided that um contextualised value added measures were um uh, not, not just um not, not to be used, but they were fundamentally unethical. Um however I I saw things the opposite way around. So um, I I also, uh, one of my, my, my PhD supervisors had done some work in this area and found some really, really serious problems with the measures. They're quite unreliable over time, they're quite unstable, they're very inconsistent, I mean there's, there's this huge amount of biases w- within them. So I embarked on a project to explore whether or not we can trust value added measures like the progress measures and, and some way into my PhD the progress measures came out so of course that became a focus um, of the research as well.
0: Yes, because I think that um, from from my time in the classroom as well, knowing that the, kind of these external measures that um, external bodies put, put on you obviously changes the behaviour of the people within the within the institution within the, within the classroom. And, and as you say, it's important to be able to question that and, and trust whether that obviously the data you are getting is is a, a, a realistic um, representation of what is happening in schools. Would you say that's true?
1: yeah I, I i would frame it more as that, that there aren't obviously perfect measures of performance but i think we need to know what the main um pitfalls are uh, and the main problems with them are so if school leaders in particular don't um aren't made aware of the limitations and the methods i i think it's something that ends up being done to them rather than something which is a tool that they own and, and can work with um so uh, uh, I would frame it a bit more like that. We've got some very sort of problematic measures and data around, and it, it can be used sensibly. It can be used judiciously, if you know how these measures are produced and and what some of their uh, issues are. And um, so, so, some of the research was to dig into that and and find out what those were.
0: And I guess the part of the education for people, I, I assume, is that when you do these big studies, is that is it's trying to get get across. The limitations of study sometimes because people want almost straightforward quick answers to things and saying this is going to have this effect this is going to have this effect and sometimes you find that some people don't dig into the the possible nuances in in whatever you've been you know looking at
1: yeah and also especially i mean it applies to cognitive science too i think it, it's, it's quite a technical area so mm. you, you can very quickly get lost in the technicalities and as you say i think it, rightly people want something which is uh Easy to understand and 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 quickly relevant to what it is, the problems that they are trying to solve. Um, I mean, me personally, I'm very interested in some of the more arcane technical aspects of this. But uh, what, what school leaders, policymakers need to know with measures, and what teachers, school leaders need to know around cognitive science is the the specific things which affect how they might do their practice differently. Even you know they don't they want don't want some of the minutia that you get in the research. Um, but it's difficult to know how much to communicate. You, you've all, all research is limited. All uh, um, evidence and findings is are incomplete or imperfect some way. So, to what extent do the people who use those findings and use those data to what extent should they be aware of those?
0: Yes, I was going to say it's a it's a it's a balance between you know giving people firm kind of um, over overarching ideas to take away and also but obviously being careful with. with um, you know thinking about the evidence and, and where it came from and, and, and whether it's applicable to their particular s- scenario so um i wanted to move on to the eef now so um eef is a a big a public body educational endowment foundation um how did you get involved with that organization in terms of your academic um link to it how did that all get started and uh what were the first steps that began that project
1: okay um so uh, i suppose the first thing to say and i and i I realise this isn't immediately obvious to people reading EEF reports, but the way they work and their overall setup is they have a core EEF team of people who work for the EEF, uh, uh, and of course the research, research schools network and uh, aff- affiliates are part of that. But when it comes to the research projects, they they want a degree of independence from the organisation to the people who do them. So they put out competitive contracts for people to bid for, so in this particular case, the EEF kicked, kicked the ball off for this with a with a, a kind of invitation to submit bids for a contract which would do a systematic review of cognitive science. So I was um, working at University of Birmingham at the time and we, we assembled a team to bid for that contract. So we were working as a contractor for the EEF. Um, it, but the EEF are very clear that the researchers need to be able to have um, uh, independence to write the, the results up as they see fit, to to to, to have that, that kind of independence of, um, uh, to, to reach an independent position on it outside of what the EEF may or may not um, believe to be true. So I think that's incredibly important. And I'd also add that the EEF are incredibly supportive and we had a really close relationship all the way throughout the review so I was regularly meeting um, people from the EF, and I, I've, I've since um, continued dialogue with them about cognitive science as well so um, there, there, there is a degree of separation but there, there's also a, a, a um, how do you say like a, a kind of mutually helpful relationship um, between researchers and the EF.
0: So you were leading up the research who else was involved in this research project?
1: Yes, so we had a, um, a, a, a very big uh, team involved on the research, which um, brought together three organisations as partners. So the, the three organisations were the University of Birmingham, where I was, uh, the Centre for the Use of Research and Evidence in Education, who are experts in CPD, in the use of research, in the translation of research. They are experts in knowledge mobilisation and, and how we can develop evidence informed practice and we also were partnered with the brain can do Center at Queen and keversham and um, they um, are literally doing this on the ground through in their own school and training others to do to, to do cognitive science they're running their own research projects they have a, a, a research activities uh, going on there as well so they're producing CPD programs um, we connected this bridging and practical expertise and knowledge uh, with the team at University of Birmingham, which includes experts in cognitive neuroscience, in cognitive psychology, in um, um, educational uh, sociology and uh, uh, anthropology as well. Um, we, we, we so we had a huge team of experts with diverse interests and expertise brought together. And um, I, I, for me, I, I'm. Uh, I'm someone who's interested in evidence and evaluating and reviewing it. So I was just enormously privileged to work with all these very interesting people with enormous uh, amount of uh, expertise in their respective areas. I was I was the, the person trying to hold this um, very diverse and interesting team together, and it was it was, a, it was a real privilege to do so.
0: Sounds like a big big project, but an exciting project as well. I know we talked also off the podcast about. Um... This idea of cognitive science but what often I get difficulty is this, this d- difference between when people talk about neuroscience people talk about cognitive science and I think people do get confused those two terms is there an is there an easy way to kind of talk about those two things and how they're different um, uh, in terms of separating them out could you could you uh, elaborate on that
1: yeah that, that is a very common question and uh, it, it's it's something we we try to think carefully about how to communicate best in the report as we as we introduce it um, I would say that cognitive science is the most general term here. Um, cognition, uh, cognitive, we <clears throat> we are primarily concerned with thinking and knowing. So when, when we're studying cognition, uh, we're often interested in a, a, a set of connected things relating to memory, attention. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's about how um, our brains bring together ideas and hopefully commit them to long-term memory so you've got this phenomenon cognition being cognitive um so cognitive science is the science of that so how might we understand how cognition works how might we understand how knowing and thinking works well this is where things break out a little bit because there's lots of different disciplines which have a say on that um so if you're a neuroscientist you're someone who studies the brain at the level of uh, the processes it uses, at the level of um, synapses, and uh, you, you use um, sort of brain um, monitoring, scanning technologies to look inside the brain to see how what's active. You, you, you're almost interested uh, in the, the the biology of the brain uh, as as much of uh, of what it can create. So. Obviously, if you're trying to understand cognition, understanding how the brain works is enormously important. So hence, neuroscientists have a really important voice in cognitive science. We also get cognitive psychologists because, of course, it, 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 people would argue perhaps that we, we get more readily usable results from not looking at necessarily the level of, kind of synapses and neurons, but actually looking at how we think on a more sort of psychological level, like what, what, what is it to think and know? Um, and it's, of course, psychology who has the kind of biggest say in, in that area of thinking about cognition. So the cognitive psychologists are doing cognitive science from a psychological perspective. And cognitive psych, uh, psychologists are often doing uh, sometimes laboratory, sometimes classroom studies, where they're giving people... Um, Learning or attention-focused tasks to see how the brain uh, processes information, to see how the brain records and collects and retrieves information. Um, but go back to the general term here of cognitive science. You, you also have input from um, a, a, a range of range of fields. You can have evolutionary cognitive science, where you look look at how the brain has evolved, um, and, and you know, anthropo- anthropological. Um, thinking there you, you there's also um related to kind of technology and um how ai tries to understand cognition so, so you get branches of cognitive science which are sort of in very different places uh, i mean you, you see less of it but you could have a kind of social uh, cognitive sociology you could have a cognitive anything um but th- this is it so to understand how thinking and knowing works cognitive science. You need to draw on a range of disciplines to understand that in a kind of multifaceted way. But it, it is neuroscience um, and it, to an even greater extent, cognitive psychology, which is the, the most helpful for us as
0: educators, I think. OK, so lots of uh, lots of synaptic connections between those subjects You know, kind of a big web. So um, lots to uh, lots to think about. And also, I guess with this, with this systematic review, we talk to move, move on, talk about the systematic review. Um, my um, out. my perception before I, I looked at some of this educational research was that educational researchers were the people who went out to the classrooms, did the, did the hypothesis, did the testing, came back, um, wrote up the results and then made some conclusions. Now, This was a much bigger project, really looking, surveying lots of different research across um, well, I guess you can tell me what it was the UK, the globe. So, could you tell me a bit about this idea of a systematic review and um and explain what, what, how, how is that carried out? What kind of decisions do you need to make out to even get started on something like that?
1: Um, so I, I would make a couple of distinctions. The first is between primary and secondary research. Primary research is, is basically when you go out and collect your own data. So your image of the education researcher there is somebody who comes to a school, collects some data. They're doing some primary research. They're collecting new data. They're going to analyse it themselves and write it up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and and that that's all very well but we we end up building up a literature from primary research at some point it helps to start to do secondary research where instead of collecting your own data you draw on the data that are already out there yeah so the secondary research you're drawing on the literature perhaps in the form maybe you do a systematic review that's a form of secondary research you also have secondary research can use an existing database so if i'm um, doing a research study using the national pupil database, the big kind of census record, we keep that would be a form of secondary research because I'm not going out collecting my own data. I'm sort of drawing on something we've already um, um, pulled together. So, okay, so let's talk about the this is this systematic review concept. So. I suppose it's it's best to start with the traditional literature review, where you, where we get some research papers and we summarise them and we say what they say and we, we we you know we put it in the front of our um, briefing or our uh, research paper or whatever it is we're working on. The pro- the problem with traditional literature reviews is that it, often people are accused of finding whatever they have to hand or whatever they, they like. They they pick the things which happen to be on their bookshelf or they pick the things they agree with them or fit their kind of story. Um, so there's a real kind of suggestion that traditional literature reviews basically tell you what the author already thinks about the r- review, furnished with some stuff they found in the literature to support it, rather than really um, making sense of what was in the literature. Um, I, I think the second problem is, is, is that the, with the literature, the, in any topic, um, that you'll get positive and negative results so you'll read one paper which says something's a great idea. You read another paper, it's a terrible idea. And then you read another paper, it's a great idea again. And suddenly you're really confused and you're not quite sure what what what, what things look like. So the idea of a systematic review is to essentially take a well a, a systematic approach to collecting all of the literature in a given area. So we're not just going to pick what we have to hand or bits and pieces. We're trying to collect all of it in the most unbiased planned way that we can. We're going to try and make it very objective. And we're going to try and do a, uh, you might say a helicopter view across the entire literature. We're going to try and see everything. And we're going to try and appraise it all. So what that looks like in terms of process is you have to pre-plan um, all steps of a systematic review wherever possible. So we had in this piece of research, we had a a protocol, which is essentially a a plan of uh, how we will do our research, Uh, a protocol which sets out what we will search for, what we're going to include, what we're going to exclude, how we'll do our analysis, and how we'll bring it all together. So you start with a plan and an aim, and you put that all in your protocol. You then set out a series of search terms and you put them into these major education research databases. Um, we searched, I think, in total around 20 different collections, all in about, I think it was around eight major databases. Um, so we, we really searched for everything out there. Um, and we put our predefined search terms in, and we got a huge, huge, huge number of results. It was, it, I think it was over 40,000 uh, research papers Uh, were located using our searches then what you do with that you have um, essentially you need a decision rule of what to keep and what to get rid of we call them eligibility criteria so for us for cognitive science um, we we in particular cared that the piece of research had been done in the classroom we didn't want anything that was done in the laboratory or looked artificial in 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 some way it had to be done in the classroom we wanted research to be done for children of school age, so between three and 18. A lot of the research has been done at higher education, but we, we we wanted to exclude that. We wanted to look at just at school level studies. Um, and we also had criteria about the quality of the research. We wanted there to be a credible, um, either experiment or quasi-experiment, which had taken place. We wanted there to be credible outcome measures, things that we could use to, to know that this is a study which we might be able to conclude something about the cognitive science works in the classroom on. So we had this big list of eligibility criteria, and then we had a very, very big job of going through 40,000 papers to screen them out to find which ones do and don't meet the eligibility criteria. After all that sifting and screening, we got down to about 500 studies which met our overall criteria, which we think is the literature on applied cognitive science in the, in the classroom, uh, at school level at least. Um, we then you go through a, a, a process of appraising the research so in the initial instances you're just looking at whether it's a, a, a good trial or not or whether it's that you know it's the right focus whether it's relevant or not but then we did a very uh, we had a couple of tools and we systematically went through and appraised we evaluated each of the studies is this a strong trial is there bias did lots of people drop out are there real errors in the results that kind of thing to find the ones which are the most trustworthy evidence within that and so we narrowed this down to it was just over 200 studies which we thought right these are the really trustworthy studies that we can build our results on we took those 200 studies we categorized them across our areas of cognitive science that we'd identified and these are the ones you'll see in the report and then we went through a process of pulling those together to uh, i suppose you might say synthesize to bring together the results in each of the areas. So of our 20 studies or whatever it was for retrieval practice, what's the big picture? Do these suggest it works or not? And what do they tell us? So and, and that, that's in a nutshell is a, is a, is a systematic review. And, and the idea is that what you've done there is unbiased, that it's, it's exhaustive, it's comprehensive and it gives the most trustworthy and uh, ob- objective account of what there is there in the literature for us.
0: And I guess uh, you talk about the process. I was just thinking about you know the big, big process you went through. I'm I'm assuming actually systematic reviews are relative well rel- relatively new because of the, the technology or able to scan so many um, research documents. I suspect in 1982 this would have been a harder thing to do in terms of the the physical um, work. You'd ha- in terms of re- research, re- researching different papers. Obviously, technology must have played a part in the sense that as you as you say, you've kind of filtered them down into. The, the studies that meet your particular criteria. So technology played a big part, I guess, in terms of helping you in this project.
1: Off the top of my head, uh, I, I see discussion of systematic review, I think it's back to about the 80s. I, I, I'm guessing a little bit here, but I'm just sort of thinking of papers who have touched on some of this. Um, so th- they're actually older than we might think. Okay. But what, what's actually happening here is there's a little bit of an arms race going on between the amount of research there is and how well we can review it so back in the 80s you have so few papers and they're, they're so inaccessible that a systematic review was involved spending a lot of time in a library physically you know movie um, flicking your way through records and files and indexes trying to find what you need there are only a few studies out there even to find and it was a but you're very slow at finding them as more studies have increased, there's been an exponential increase in research over the last uh, 50 years. Um, we've got better and better and more electronic tools at finding them, but we've also got a proliferation in the amount of research. Um, and I think we're heading to an era where we have algorithms and data mining techniques used to try to pick things out of an increasingly unwieldy and large uh, evidence literature base,
0: so yeah, it's more of an arms race than a kind of recent recent uh, phenomenon that it's turned up. Lots lots of information out there to to kind of yeah whistle down and, and try and find what are the very uh, simplistic good and bad studies or, or the ones that you're looking, at, you what you're defining as, as as relevant evidence and 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 maybe less less strong evidence. So you looked at eight main strategies. So I'm going to read them out and I'm going to check, check that I've got them right. So it was so cognitive um, science strategy. So space practice, two interleaving, three retrieval practice, four managing the cognitive load, five working with schemas, six cognitive theory with multimedia learning, seven embodied learning and eight mixed strategy programs. So some of these I'd, I'd have heard of before I had a look at the report and some of them were kind of a uh, maybe not new, but I hadn't really thought about what they actually, actually mean. So maybe we can dig into that a little bit because there's often a confusion. So I'll start with the first, first one, which people often it, get wrong. Sorry, go on, Tom. Yeah. It,
1: it, uh, on the, so just to get definitions really clear here, hmm. the, these eight, I would describe them as areas. Areas, okay. We've actually got some strategies within them. Right, okay,
0: okay. So, um,
1: for, for example, one of the... Um, um, Let's say the spacing one yeah um, we actually have two strategies within space practice because when we read the literature there we found the general area which is spa- the spacing effect and and, and and using that but this led some people to want to space across lessons where you spread the learning out from lesson to lesson or to week to week whereas there were other examples of people spacing within lessons where they're doing 10 minutes on something and then 10 minutes on a, a completely different task and then back to the first thing in 10 minutes so we split that into two strategies of uh, a, a, almost a kind of planning across lessons spacing strategy and a this is what you might do within a single lesson strategy so that in total there were 14 strategies which sat underneath these eight areas
0: right okay um because thinking i mean that's spaced exactly as you, as you said there must have been such variety of, you know, you could space across a week, you could do it a month, you could talk yeah. about w- what you do during a school year. You could, you know, so there is so many differences within within those two things. I mean, within the, um and I guess it kind of linked, and I thought that, that retrieval practice, I suppose, you can't almost detach it very easily from space practices because it could have been re- retrieval practice is one of those things you could have been doing within your space practice trial. I am thinking,
1: yes, and you, you are not alone. People in a single breath and. Unproblematically, say space retrieval practice. It's it, it's such a uh, um, um, it's such a connected set of ideas which in, both in principle and in practice work very well together. Um, I, I would go further and say that there's a set of principles about practice and um, sequencing here, which which link to space practice, interleaving and retrieval practice together. I, and, and and when I've been talking to schools about some of these, I've I've tended to clump those together as principles of practice, uh, but uh, and I, where I've talked about spaced practice, interleaving, and retrieval practice, um, there are a few differences. So maybe it's helpful to sort of tease them apart a little. bit. Yes, 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 and and I think it is especially helpful to tease them apart because there are independent principles at play, and I think it's useful to know all of the principles, even if in practice you're doing a bit of space retrieval. Let's say. Um, so the idea of space practice simply is that it it's you you're learning or usually practicing with gaps in between and that is what's often called a desirable difficulty you're better off doing 15 minutes of revision four times than an hour's revision all at once and this seems to be a general principle of learning which applies across a huge number of um, Instances, so that but that that's a that's a principle on its own right. Um, retrieval, though, is slightly different because what's happening in retrieval the principle it, it it is not about the spacing. It's about that when you recall something from your memory, you strengthen your memory, and what that means is we get a testing effect, and we get some really interesting studies where like let's say a control group is given a piece of text to reread, they just reread it, while a, uh, an experimental group get a test on the same piece of text. And we keep finding that the group that's tested actually learn more than the group that reread the text. And uh, uh, to generalize that slightly, um, when you have a test of your memory, um, you, it, you, you'll tend to learn more than an equivalent group who are, let's say, yeah, reading a text or re- being re- re-taught something or being re-presented something, um, or you know, re-watching a video, uh, and this has huge implications for how we recap and revisit material um, as teachers, and it has implications for students of how they revise. And again, this is another example of a desirable difficulty because when students watch that video again, or, you know, they they, go, you know, they read their textbook page again. They have this lovely feeling of familiarity, and they feel they know it, and they feel they're getting more information. And they say, right. I've learned more, and I'm, I'm much happier about this. Whereas the students who you give them the same information, but as a test, they say it's been really tough and challenging, and they've really hated it. and They don't think they've learned anything, but it turns out um, they, they've, they've learned more. What's happening here is that how... Every time we've learned something, it's it's slowly fading in our memory. Uh, A famous Ebbinghaus forgetting curve was an attempt to describe the rate at which that forgetting happens. Um, When we um, retrieve something from our memory, we're essentially telling our brain that this is useful information and it should consolidate it. It should hold on to it. So if every time you test yourself on something, that memory gets a bit stronger So everything you can retrieve, you should be retrieving because it will consolidate the memory there. And that's a slightly different principle to space practice. So when we do space retrieval practice, we're combining those two things together and saying you'll learn more when we space these things out. And you'll also learn more when it's in the form of a test rather than the form of just a rereading something or recapping something without any form of kind of test there. Um, But you can do both at the same time, because if you're doing a quiz every day, let's say a recap quiz, you're doing space retrieval and you're ticking both principles. um, And just to throw that for the sake of completion, while we're talking about practice, the interleaving idea is, again, it's another example of a desirable difficulty, that where there is a topic which um, it's useful to either connect or sort of separate out, like maybe additional subtraction problems. They superficially look quite similar, but there's obviously a different uh, operation little process to do them. If you interleave, you move between those two topics, people get better at separating those two things out. We, we don't have evidence on this, uh, at least not in, in our review, but I would speculate things like if you're teaching, let's say, similes, metaphors, let's say, um, You'd be better off moving between similes and metaphors and back and forth, giving mixed examples than you would doing a block of similes and a block of metaphors. Because one of the things that you're doing when you're interleaving is you're learning to separate out two similar but different things. Yeah. Have a more distinct conception of the two things and how they differ and more clearly seeing each separate uh, 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 concept Um, So, again, that's that's another principle that's there. And you could, again, do your daily retrieval quiz and you could throw in some similar but different concepts there with a deliberate view to helping the students separate those things out. One thing I would say, though, is we had some really good, strong evidence for interleaving, particularly in maths, exactly the operations example I was just given. Um, But we also had uh there and later on in the review some examples of trying to separate out things which led to misconceptions and actually it, it seemed it can backfire a little bit easily so if you're putting things which are easy to confuse together you have to be really careful that you're doing that with a really keen eye and separating those things out otherwise you might exacerbate and consolidate a confusion rather than clear one up
0: yeah i think that there's is you know being a former science teacher myself there's a, there's a i guess there's a tendency you don't want to depending on the kind of attainment level of the the, the child at the beginning as in say you we're doing using an example of um, adding or subtracting a few doing times tables for example and i'm thinking about some of some of my my personally my own children here in terms of what you almost need to you need to reach a certain level of competence before you can start interleaving because I think that um, if I talk to, I wouldn't name or say the gender of the child I'm talking about in my household, but um, they need to almost um, have a real confident grasp of, let's say, let's say the two times table because as soon as uh, as soon as you throw in the eight times table and you do them alternatively, they just could completely... Um, Completely uh, distract. So, um, and that is very difficult. So obviously, that's, that's a personal thing in terms of, and that's just an observation from what I've seen uh, from teaching. And I can see the power of it. And in a sense, that's the way that um, uh, exams are ultimately designed in the, in that kind of um, interleave different topics in different, you know, orders or what have you within it, like an exam paper, for example. So, it's the ultimate test of um, switching between ideas. And whenever you do switch behind it, switch um, to a different idea. Um, is an increase in your cognitive load, I'd say, in terms of your, your switching from this topic and then, oh, I've got to solve this type of problem now. Um, and as you say, you get that kind of um illusion of competence sometimes when you're just doing the same types of problems, you think, oh brilliant at this kind of problem. And then someone throws out, Well, well, um, you know, Andy, how about triangles? You've been you're great at circles, but um, yeah. you know, so they have got to but you know, I'm like, oh God, I can't remember about that. So in terms of training, I think that's definitely kind of that mixed practice is, is excellent but yeah I guess you've got to be careful about for the for the student. are they are they almost ready and will they get d, um uh, you know demotivated by suddenly hitting problems all the time and then you've got all those other kind of complex kind of social and you know effects yeah. as well I,
1: I, and I'd say that the bottom line for a lot of this is that you need to know your students and know your subjects and that that and that's it a lot first of all I think what you've just said there I think that's absolutely right and I mean maybe it's worth just pointing out that I've said, you know, that interleaving. I'm putting in this principles of practice rather than principles of learning sort of cluster, if you like. Like, I, I do think that's it. I think it's you've got to have learned something first, and then it's it's how you proceed with the practice side of things. So yeah, I, I think you need to learn each thing individually, probably in the first instance. Um, and also teachers told us this within the review as, as part of the review we we did uh, a big survey and we did some interviews we looked at lots of kind of guidance documents and what people were doing and tried to really hear the voices of teachers on this and many of them said well either personally they don't understand interleaving they don't think of their colleagues always understand it they're not quite sure how to use it or what how best to use it um so i, I see interleaving as you know a, a particular thing which is you know, certain parts of, you know, your curriculum, there might be those couple of tricky concepts, which always get connected together, but need to be separated out. And I think that's, it's, it's quite, it, I wouldn't use it as part of kind of general practice. I think it's more a a subject and content specific thing, which probably needs a bit of expertise and good knowledge of the, the, the children to, to to do well, I would say.
0: Yeah, and I definitely can see how I know you said um, when the report says talks about about a lot of the evidence coming from science and maths. I'm from a science background, and just thinking about um, my own subject, when I talk chemistry, there was this, there's a thing called atom economy and percentage yield, which you do at GCSE, do A level as well. But um, it's often a thing that's confused, and I can see the value in terms of teaching both separately, and then almost then having the mixed practice and and for each one working out which 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 approach do I need to take for that for that particular you know that particular area. So I can completely see how um you you know it has 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 a powerful effect but it's yes yeah, it's all those other things that are, we're in the teacher's life in terms of time they've got in the curriculum you know have they got time to go back to it pressures from external stuff so there's all these things to think about i was going to ask you also about um because i know we haven't got time to talk about everything but um i wanted to ask you about um what do, working with schemas because um again to me that's i've got kind of my perception of it. but what is What's your what What do you mean by working with schemas in in this uh, in, in your So um,
1: the, the 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 first um, sort of four or five categories: space practice, interleaving, retrieval practice, managing managing cognitive load. Yeah, uh, and also we had dual coding, um, came straight from the original kind of contract, if you like. That was you know we absolutely needed to, to look at those. Okay. Um, what what we had though within our uh, study database was was quite a lot of studies um which were cognitive science informed which didn't really necessarily fit within those so working with schemas I, I would i'm not putting this forward as a new technical term which everyone should use this this was a very pragmatic category of we've got this bunch of studies they're all sort of in the same area what shall we call them and they were all related to i, I suppose the closest term and I, I look back and wonder whether we might have used this would be generative learning um we we didn't choose that one because it has a particular Set of ideas and it's a very powerful set of ideas, but we 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 wanted to keep go for something which was similar but different to that. Really, so is the idea that a lot of the practice um, area is, is is focused on consolidating knowledge and strengthening memory. Um, a lot of um, what we see around cognitive load is about when that kind of first when the, the, the information comes in in the first place it's like how much information do you give to students in one instance how do you sequence that how do you make that manageable <clears throat> it's, it's often kind of very very relevant for obviously very new uh, topics in, in particular but, but has more general relevance of course but then once you've got this sort of initial learning of something in place and perhaps you're not looking to um consolidate it through retrieval practice. What else might you do with it? And the answer is often, well, you often try and elaborate and extend learning. You try and improve it, you add, you add to it, you connect it with other things. So this working with schemas category is is one where there are a group of studies which have taken something which has been initially learnt and then has looked to develop that learning more to, to make it more in-depth, to give it more breadth um, and I mean, just an example of a few of the strategies in there, it, as I say, this is quite a pragmatic category here um, of grouping the studies we had together. Let me, let me see, hang on. Um, right, so one of these was around um, either concept or knowledge mapping or kind of organising it in some way. Does it help students to have some overview of what it is they're learning? In some way, so that could be a knowledge organizer. It could be a concept map, let's say. It could be some kind of diagram which shows the overall space in which they're learning. So we we looked at uh, various strategies around, say, concept mapping or not yet yeah, using knowledge organize, organizers, which which worked with that. It we we we're looking at where particularly it's being used as a tool to improve learning in that space. The the other one we looked at was. Schema and or concept comparison or conflict. So there seem to be a lot of things based on cognitive science looking at the role of cognitive conflict or cognitive dissonance, where two ideas which just are incompatible are put together in front of you. Um, And and there's some really good examples of this in science where you put the everyday kind of human intuitive understanding of how the world works next to the kind of scientific vision of it. Like we might put um, uh, you know how how people think physics ought to work, and how physics actually works together. We might put um, we we you know, dropping the, the 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 two balls off the Eiffel Tower. No, it's not the Eiffel Tower. It's the Leaning Tower of Pisa, isn't it? Um, <laughs> using different materials and the kind of intuition that we have around physics is is that one thing's going to happen. They, they you know the heavy thing's going to drop faster. Yet our understanding of physics, is that's not how it works. So there are a few examples of that where deliberately two different concepts of the same thing, usually a scientific versus an intuitive concept, were put deliberately in front of the students in conflict in a deliberate attempt for them to compare and try and separate them out. Um, We had uh, quite mixed evidence, I should say. I think we're, we're back to the interleaving conversation a little bit here but that seemed to backfire sometimes and it seemed to work brilliantly sometimes so there seems to be when you make those comparisons those conflicts sometimes it can backfire and you end up consolidating misconceptions but when you do it well it seems a really powerful way of um, helping children learn
0: okay and um Moving even further down this, I guess this one that's also kind of came up was this, this idea of embodied learning. Could you tell us a bit about what you what you, what you meant by that, or what you decided to define that as?
1: Okay, so this is a very uh, it was a, a quite small area of the review, and it wasn't one that we searched for specifically in the outset searches. So I suspect there's quite a bit more literature on this <clears> than <throat> we were able to find. It was merely that meeting our eligibility criteria which did include general searches for cognitive science, brain-based learning, that, that kind of thing, um, we had a, a series of studies which which linked to this area, in embodied learning. So embodied learning is the idea that um, we often think using our body and our thinking is connected with our kind of bodily movements. So we quite naturally, um, for example, uh, we, we think about, um, um, we 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 connect a movement or, or something that we can do with our body to to something a concept that we might learn. So the, the, I think it's probably best through examples, because there are different ways of looking at embodied learning, and some, some more philosophical than others. But um, some things that we looked at, which which seemed to be quite promising, were things like gesture. Um, there seem to be studies where a gesture accompanying um, a concept, um, and, and I should say, this is particular, the, most of the evidence here was early years to key stage three, and some of the best evidence we think was down in kind of primary school and early years. So, let's say you're telling a story to children and you want them to remember a concept, you want them to remember the story, it helps to embody it and do a gesture as part of that. Um, but we did have some really exactly nice examples. I think within this one, there's a very nice study. Which was, I think it was called Playground Physics or something. They'd, they'd created some, I think it was like a, a, kind of recording system on the iPad, and they, they, they went out and tried to put it the, the physics in action using their bodies, using you know apparatus and using things in the playground, and they, well yeah, they embodied the concept. They they used their body to um, learn to, to so uh, I, I, I'm, I'm sort of. I'm searching around here for, for a kind of concrete example for you, but something like if you wanted someone to understand friction, I mean, you might tell them about friction, you might show them diagrams about friction and talk about it conceptually, but if you um, feel different materials and they have to feel which has a greater level of friction. What's, um, whether or not that's, uh, I mean, you, you'd have to tell me whether that's a good learning strategy or not. But what's happened is you've embodied it, you've turned it into something sensory where, where they know the feeling of friction through their body rather than through a kind of word or a kind of piece of vocabulary or a concept. They, they, it's, we had some studies as well where um, cho- children would, we, we connected this a little bit sorry, I am jumping about a little bit. We we connected this slightly to our, um, some spatial approaches like you get in maths. So sometimes it's often helpful to visualise things across space. So a number line, for example, people often when they think of numbers, they they, they, they think of them as spread out in space, almost in front of them. And they they can sort of visualise how big or small that is. So what you get there is some strategies, like you say, let's say a number line, and that fell into a kind of visuals area y- using that. But you can also do the same spatial awareness and spatial um, processing of that with your body. So there, I remember one study where children were having to jump a certain size, uh, a, a certain distance in the playground, depending on how big the number they were told were. They were, they were being told to visualise and embody the size of proportions. So, so, I mean, some of these didn't work. I mean, I'm not recommending any of this. I'm not. I'm saying that what, what you get is, is in embodied learning, is thinking whether there's a bodily action or movement or something you can do with your body which will um, help you better understand the concept. I, I should say as well, despite it being quite a small group, all of the studies in this area were positive. And, they, and we said in our review that we think that this is an area which has considerable promise. Um, and it, it probably is, um, it warrants a, almost a systematic review in its own right to collect some of the wider literature. I know some of the wider literature will not be as positive. And I also think we've got a really difficult uh, set of things to sort out between some of the more fluffy um, and discredited ideas around like learning styles that you know, make everyone kinesthetic learners. I think some of that doesn't look like it's supported by the evidence. So, so it's just movement for its own sake. Whereas some of it is genuinely supportive of cognition. And I I don't think we're quite able to separate that out yet. And I certainly don't think we're able to separate it out in a curriculum um, specific way or a pedagogically specific way. Um, But there there were some studies which showed promise in that
0: area. Mm, Yeah, it's quite interesting you talk about the um, friction. I thought that'd be an excellent example in terms of literally rubbing your hands together in in, in feeling what friction feels like and also the the fact that. Uh, when you're talking about friction you're talking about a transfer of um you know en- energy to a certain extent and, you know your hands would heat up if you if you you know if you rub them you know vigorously so it's almost like yeah kind of almost like dual co- dual coding for your body to a certain extent and kind of getting that physicality and It reminded me of um one of my children who um Finds it very difficult to, and this is not embodied learning. I'd say, but it's kind of to me, it's a bit like a, a bit between dual dual coding and embodied learning. Is is the she's uh, learning t- uh, tables with um, stories, so pictures uh, rather than uh, just the numbers. So, two of my children can can quite easily just look at numbers and go, okay, it's, you know six times six is thirty six. But but um uh, it's very di- finds that very very difficult, and um, she. It's a great success in looking at um these stories and her timetables have just um been absolutely am- amazing since she started using this different completely different idea and and she finds it almost easy so it's, it's interesting just seeing um from my parent point of view that you know uh, what you think works you know obviously for one, one child as, as we know doesn't always work for everyone else and, and another technique like you know some of these ones you've been talking about could definitely have a kind of big Big learning impact, I think, and I can see that um, in terms of their, their their kind of progress within a particular subject and the subjects that that sometimes you think, oh, they just don't get this, but if you find that obviously you have run the right technique, sometimes it can, um, you know, be quite you know an eye opening thing to 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 view. Definitely. Um, uh, what I wanted to kind of talk to you before you went today was. Um, and I kind of touched on it before, this idea that a lot of the, the, the studies you've looked at were in maths and science subjects. I was just going to ask you the question. Um, do you think, in a sense, as a bit of cognitive, um, sorry, uh, confirmation bias in a sense, that, um, you know, I'm a former science teacher. I quite like a lot of these ideas. You know, do maths teachers like them as well? Um, is it just easier to judge the outcomes of kind of science and maths because it's easy to quantify or easier, I suppose? Um, is there any, any comments you'd like to make about that?
1: Yeah, so the first thing to say is, is exactly that, what you've just mentioned. Actually, when you're working with a subject which is slightly more technical and slightly more concrete in its learning outcomes, you can be right or wrong in a maths answer in, in a way that it's much harder to be in English literature, literature let's say. Um, it, first of all, just from an education assessment and measurement point of view, you get far more reliable measures. So we see this in all educational measurement that it's that it's the maths measures which are more reliable than the English measures or whatever. Um, so when you're a researcher, you know you, you think, well, uh, let let's go with a really strong, robust, reliable outcome measure, and then maybe that's why you think maths and science. So that that's one possible reason. I think that there's something in that. I think it's very daunting to measure learning outcomes in some areas of the curriculum, and that hasn't lent itself to it to doing cognitive science and exploring cognitive science ideas because you might find yourself um not being able to conclude much from your study not because you haven't conducted it well or because it's not relevant to the subject but because actually you just struggle to measure the outcome and so it got lost in the kind of noise of the measurement of that um so I think that's that's a very important reason I think there's something else about the kind of cultures um I um I think it could be more so but there are important connections between education research cultures in different subjects and and practice. So a lot of education research researchers are former educators, former school teachers themselves, and they gravitate towards not just the subjects but also the kind of general philosophies and ideas from where they come from. So if you're a maths and science enthusiast and then you move into educational research, I mean I, I can see why that would make you want to do a scientific approach to doing research cognitive science is a um well yeah, it, it it it's a science and that, that comes with a philosophy of objectivity and measurement and trialing and testing and it and that's the kind of thing we have picked up in this study whereas if you're coming from a let's say an arts background um you'll tend to uh there's a tendency for researchers from an arts background to want to continue to do research in that artistic Philosophical tradition, so you'll you'll far more likely to be a qualitative researcher who wants to explore the intricacies and nuances of what happens in the arts classroom, and less likely to want to do a randomised controlled trial about that. Um, so I think that that that's some of it. That's some of it too. I think the other thing um, which is probably lacking is any sort of overarching oversight of where the research gets spent. So once you've got to, you know, you're you're maybe a professor in a university somewhere and you've got your research lab centre, you know, underway, um, there isn't necessarily an incentive to explore educational variables rather than the cognitive variables. So you want the easiest kind of possible measure there. But organisations like the EEF deliberately ask for maths and English and you might argue that they should go further and try across the, the curriculum itself. Um, but the point is, there's no overarching authority to say, right, we've already got some good maths and science studies. So now can we do some concrete science studies in art or in PE or in a, um, you know primary geography or something? Um, there's not really that level of oversight of someone funding research, which might fill in these gaps, um, with perhaps the honourable exception of the EEF, who... Are looking at future research trials and programs and, and seeing these gaps and wanting to fill them so um, that's a good example of a, a large organization who, who is a bit more strategic than your individual uh, research center let's say sometimes
0: okay um now i know that we've spoken about lots of things we haven't had time to talk about everything um in the time we've had today um, but i was wondering if you would um would be happy to suggest thinking about um Kind of your own children, what would you like your the teachers that teach your children? What what kind of things would you like them to be doing in their classrooms? Having done this big systematic review, Are there any things that you think, hmm, I think they should be doing a bit more of this and maybe a bit less of that. Is there any kind of uh, suggestions you'd like to put out there that that you think they're looking quite positive and things that we should be trying with children?
1: I think there's a huge amount of promise right across the board here. Um, we, we said you know, our first conclusion was cognitive science matters teachers should know about these strategies and these principles um there, there was nothing in there which seemed to um uh, w- w- some of it was incredibly powerful some even when we were identifying some of the the, the problems it was more uh the, the challenges of, of getting it working in practice. So, for example, like there's there's no there's no questioning, say dual coding theory, for example. I mean that's the basic science on that is fundamentally sound, but in our review, we found it was quite difficult to make it work in practice, and actually teasing apart the principles of doing it was really tricky. So, what I would say is I wouldn't want. Um, <laughs> them to be doing anything in particular in terms of a, a specific practical strategy. I would want all the teachers at my daughter's primary school to know the principles that sit behind each of these strategies and each of these areas of cognitive science. So like we talked earlier about the principles of practice, I think they're really, really important principles for teachers to know. I would like them to reflect on what that looks like. Uh, Cognitive load theory, I I should just throw in there, but again, there's a really important set of principles there. I think teachers should know these principles, and they should be reflecting on what that means for their practice. And I'd be very, very surprised if six months down the line that you're not seeing some of these more practical strategies arise from that. But I I think we often get it wrong. Like, I think it's better to teach the principles to teachers and give suggestions for strategies and not expect to see specific strategies because then we end up with a education system where everyone's doing a retrieval quiz at the start of their lesson. And I think that's missed the point a little bit. I I think it's teachers should be thinking about when certain ideas, maybe key vocabulary or something, when it reappears within their curriculum and it can reappear anywhere. Um, it, it, It can reappear with any form as, as long as it, it forms retrieval it doesn't have to be a quiz um so i i i think i think it's at the level of principles that teachers should be working and i would be very happy if they all had a really good understanding of the principles
0: and yeah i guess embedded into teacher training in some form in these future programs would be really really powerful um, so my last question to you is um thinking about obviously as a big systematic review and you obviously looked at, you know, huge numbers of studies and looking at the different techniques and strategies. Um, having looked at those those studies, is is there one you would say you'd really like to find out some more evidence from? As in you think it looks like a, or maybe that's confirmation bias, perhaps. I don't know. But um, um, Is there anything you'd like to find a bit more information to kind of smooth off the edges and, and, and find out a bit more? Is there any of them particularly particular you're quite interested in just just intellectually yourself?
1: Oh, well, one of the the most frustrating aspects of doing a systematic review is you're going through so much really interesting research, and you just don't have time to to Look at you it. know really 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 go into it in detail. Um, so, I, I, I'm really not going to pick one study. Okay. Um, I think there's some really really uh, there's, there's there's some absolute gems in there of. Um, uh, I think it's more some of the concepts that come from them. Um, the so I mean just uh, okay, it, this has just bubbled to my mind, so I'll say it. Um, there's one study looking into something called seductive details. Okay. Seductive details. There, there's a series of studies we found which were exploring the use of kind of more concrete or more abstract abstract examples to help people understand things. Um, I, I remember this one study was talking about seductive details. And saying that you, you can sometimes have a situation where a teacher tries to give a really nice concrete example and they say, oh, yes, well, it's like it's like this. And they tell an anecdote or a joke or they talk about their children or something. And we you know we've done this today. It's naturally what you do to say, well, it, here, here's how to ground this in something real. Um, but then you find that some students remember the seductive detail, but not the concept they were supposed to be remembering.
0: Okay. So,
1: yeah, I, I remember reading that study and thinking, oh, my goodness, because. Well, you yeah, know, certainly when I teach, I'm like I teach research methods, which can get nastily abstract in places. So I'm telling all these kind of anecdotes and jokes and interesting stories about the, you know the people who made these theories and things. And I just think, oh, I wonder how many of those are the things that my students will remember rather than the thing that I actually wanted them to remember. So I think if I wanted to go into one, I'd probably want to, I'd probably want to know a little bit more about seductive details. I know that's slightly off the main course here, but that's the Um, uh, And I suppose my more general comment is um, – I'd very much like to make this point – is that where we are with cognitive science, and I think people haven't necessarily awoken to this yet, is that we have a really, really strong and really impressive evidence base from the basic science, so it's back to those neuroscientists, um, um, those um, cognitive psychologists. but all of that has deliberately and understandably focused on the cognitive variables. They care about the memory, they care about the you know, working memory overload, attention. It's about the, 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 the cognition because that's what they're studying. But what really matters to teachers is, is incorporating that into this much wider set of concerns for teachers, it's thinking. I mean, I would, if I had to pick three things that you know to look at the first time. You know, if you walk into a classroom, I'd say, well, it's the teacher and the teaching, it's the curriculum, it's, it's what 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 are these children learning, and it's the children themselves. Who are these children? What do they know? What 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 do they like? What do they what do they do? It's the children, it's the curriculum, and it's the teachers, and of course, cognitive science has deliberately controlled out all of those variables. There is no there's no study I know of or that we could find which saw whether retrieval practice worked better with early career teachers rather than experienced teachers. And we touched on interleaving earlier. Uh, I, I, that would be really particular for that. A very, very important thing to know because interleaving is something you can get wrong quite easily. So this teacher variable has been excluded. Most of the studies were delivered by the researchers themselves, sometimes with the teachers literally sitting in their own classroom in the corner Sometimes the lessons were scripted, sometimes they're by computers. There was a real deliberate attempt to control out what for us is one of the most important aspects of it, the, the teaching. And again, the curriculum that designed to, as we've touched on, certain subjects, but also within those very controlled topics, which can be very easily measured, which are, they know the students haven't come across before. There's a certain control there as well. And again, with the students, there's no exploration, really, that, that we could see of that. There was some exploration of prior attainment, um, but very little elsewhere in terms of other pupil differences that we might think to, to think about. Um, and that's a real surprise to people, because what we've got, therefore, is a really strong set of um, ideas about how the brain and how memory and learning and thinking works. And we've done some and people have interpreted that and come up with some brilliant classroom strategies, which I think plausibly stem from that. But we just haven't tested that in the natural environment, as it were, in a kind of realistic setting. And in the mixed strategy review, um, the the, the area of the review where we actually have done that, there were big studies, 10,000 students and hundreds of schools. We actually got really disappointing results taking some cognitive science ideas, putting them in the curriculum, putting them in CPD. When we try them out in realistic conditions with real teachers, real students at scale, we get much smaller effect sizes. It suggests there's a real gap there between yeah. the potential of cognitive science and what we're currently able to translate into classroom practice and school curriculum. I think there's a lot more potential out there and, uh, and, and, and just to say, I mean, I think the brilliant work being done by teachers, school leaders, um, you know, researchers who are well connected with practice to describe what it might look like in the classroom is excellent. And I think alongside that, places like the EEF should be doing robust classroom trials of some of this. So we have some of that applied evidence to, to, to support that. So it, it's slightly long winded, but coming back to your question here, the, the main thing I would think about when reading through the review. Um, a lot of the papers was, I would love to try this in practice. Uh, it's brilliant that you've done this in this really controlled way. Um, in our review, we had things which had to be in the classroom, but that doesn't mean they couldn't be controlled. And I thought, great, I'd love to try that across the trust, across the local authority, across a school. And I'd like to see that how, how that played out over the next six, 12 months. Yeah. Um, so, i think that was my i want to know more it was always i wonder what that would look like in a really realistic conditions how would that play out and that's what i'd be really interested to know more about
0: well hopefully someone is listening to the podcast and they might be at reach out to you with an offer um (laughs) sooner than you think tom uh thanks so much for for joining me today it's been a fascinating interesting conversation and i know we could probably spend three hours talking about it but um We have to end it there today, uh, but thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today.
1: It's been an absolute pleasure, Andy.
0: Thank you. Thanks again for listening to this episode. I think you'll agree that this type of review is so important. These reports help teachers make informed decisions on which strategies could be useful in their classrooms and more importantly, any limitations they may also have. If you have time, I recommend you follow the links in the notes and find out some more for yourself hope you enjoyed the episode and as always feel free to get in touch if you've got any suggestions for future guests for the podcast my email address is andy.woods at pearson.com until next time goodbye